How appropriate that after last week and Acts chapter 2 and Pentecost and the 3,000 coming to faith in Christ and the baptism of those 3,000 that we celebrated baptism even this morning. It is a great blessing that we have that we can proclaim Christ both in song and through the public testimonies of faith in Christ through water baptism. Someone once said, broken promises are like broken mirrors. They leave those who held to them bleeding and staring at fractured images of themselves. Said another way, broken promises lead to broken lives. Promise-breaking is in our world, in our day. It is in us. Politics is littered with broken promises. In Washington, D.C., in our state capitol, in City Hall, one politician said, a wise man is one who knows when to break his promises. That's a world's perspective. We make New Year's resolutions, don't we? We make promises, if you will. We rarely keep them much past the end of the month if they make it that long. But broken promises are part of our lives, aren't they? How often have you been disappointed by promises broken by your employer? Or perhaps one of your employees? Or closer to home, disappointed by promises broken by friends or by family, by husbands or wives, by children? How seriously do we really take promises? Well, the track record would indicate at best an inconsistent record on that score, which is accurately reflected in the Scriptures. In the Bible, we see many people breaking their promises. We are reminded that Peter, the one who had preached on the day of Pentecost, on the day 3,000 came to believe in Jesus, the one who will be God's hand in healing the lame man, even in today's passage, And we'll preach a message that will bring the number of believers to 5,000. That Peter had broken promises. He had broken big promises. On the night before Christ went to the cross, Peter promised to die before he would deny Christ. Yet Jesus knew Peter's heart. For just as our sovereign Lord said he would, Peter broke his promise and three times he disowned Jesus before the night was over. He denied that he even knew Christ because he was afraid. Afraid of what men would think of him. Afraid of what they would do to him. But now, after the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father and the coming of the Holy Spirit to empower the disciples as Christ... Peter is a changed man. And the other apostles and their fellow disciples are changed as well. They have gone from cowering in fear in the upper room to witnessing for Jesus in and around the temple in Jerusalem in full view of the very religious and civil authorities who just weeks earlier had put Jesus to death on a cross and could do the very same to them. Where had the fear gone? Those who had been timid are now bold. Bold enough to do something extraordinary on their way to the temple for afternoon prayers that points to the God of all the universe, of all eternity, 
who keeps his promises. The promises he's made to his people. Promises that demonstrate God's faithfulness in saving his people through Jesus Christ. This Jesus who is the one who fulfills God's promises. He is the fulfillment of what God has spoken. So turn with me this morning to Acts chapter 3 and verse 1. Acts chapter 3 and verse 1. We're going to start reading. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. The ninth hour, three in the afternoon. The Jews in Jesus' day prayed three times, morning, afternoon, and evening. And a lame man from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. A large crowd would have been coming at this time to pray. Verse 3. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple... He asked to receive alms, money. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is an astounding miracle. This 40-year-old man has been lame from birth. He never learned to walk. Have you ever watched a baby learn to walk? How long does it take? How long from taking that first step to running and leaping? Well, months and months and months. But this man is healed by the power of the living Christ through Peter and has strong feet and strong ankles and is leaping. Twice in Acts chapter 2, we were told this kind of thing would happen. Peter had preached that signs and wonders and mighty acts of God would testify to and point to Jesus Christ. You see this in verses 4 to 6. Peter gazed, rather Peter directed his gaze at him as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold. You see, the beggar was probably expecting that when Peter and John fixed their gaze on him, money was coming his way. But Peter wants to make sure he knows, no money is coming your way, but something greater is coming your way. I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. Now this could have been an opportune moment for Peter. He could have taken the credit for this. He could have, it could have been Peter's time to shine. He could have begun the Peteranity movement, right? But no. 
Peter makes sure he has the lame man's attention and then makes it really clear that this miracle is done in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. It is by the power of the living Christ that this is done. This sign, this miracle, like all others, like speaking in known languages, speaking in tongues on the day of Pentecost, points to the Savior, not to Peter. Peter is merely the instrument through which God's power flows. Thus, this miracle is a sign of what Jesus had come into this world to do. The prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, 700 years before the Son of God would be born as a baby in a stable, gave this description of what the Messiah, the Savior of Israel, would do from Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For water breaks forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Isaiah's prophecy paints a picture of a better Garden of Eden as the dwelling place of God's people when Messiah comes. The first coming of Jesus begins a process that following his return at his second coming will accomplish a complete fulfillment of this prophecy from Isaiah 35. But that time is not yet. For we are still in the last days, the days between Christ's first and his second coming. And Luke records Jesus himself reminding John the Baptist of this ministry of the Messiah when he comes. John the Baptist had been arrested and thrown in prison. And he was soon to die at the hands of Herod. And quite honestly, things didn't look so good for John the Baptist. And as he looked around, he began to question whether the Messiah was really here. Well, he here as the herald of the coming Messiah is in prison and it looks like the Romans are still in charge. And the kingdom of Israel seems far off. So John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have heard and seen. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Sounds like Jesus is quoting Isaiah chapter 35, doesn't it? He's talking to John in the language of the Old Testament. Jesus is saying, I am the promised Messiah who would come. And when he comes, he would heal the sick, the sick, restore sight to the blind, make the lame walk, the deaf to hear, raise the dead. Our master historian, Luke, records the fact that Jesus does all these, these things. 
God is faithful in keeping His promises. He sent the Messiah as He promised. But why did the Spirit of God have Luke record this miracle in Acts 3 and place it here? Is healing essential to the gospel? If so, why didn't the apostles heal more people? Why didn't Jesus heal everyone and rid the entire Middle East of disease and suffering? Well, the apostles were given the gift of healing. But apparently they could not heal everyone all the time. For one of Paul's servants in the ministry was left behind to heal because he was sick in 2 Timothy 4. Even those who are healed by Jesus and the apostles, including the man we just read about in Acts 3, eventually die a natural death. No, something else is going on here. Sickness is a sign of what in our lives? I heard it. Sickness is a sign of a world that has something wrong in it. Something not right. Something broken. Sin has entered this world and make a mess of it, and sickness is the symptom of that brokenness. Stated simply, the reason for sickness is sin. Not that we can draw a direct line from our sins and our sicknesses. That's usually not the case, as Jesus explained to the crowd in John chapter 9, who wanted to know if the blind man was born blind because of his own sin or that of his parents. Jesus told them neither was true. His blindness was simply the result of living in a sin-cursed world. Jesus came to pay the penalty for our sin. By his stripes we are healed, Isaiah wrote in chapter 53. Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 53 about the salvation we have in Messiah, in God's servant, in Jesus, as he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. It's definitely the most clear teaching on the atonement for sin by the Messiah in the Old Testament and maybe in the entire Bible. And interestingly, in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus quotes this very passage from Isaiah immediately after physically healing all who were sick in his hometown of Capernaum. In doing this, Jesus blends together physical healing and atonement for sin. There is a connection between them. The point is this. Atonement and healing belong together. Why? Because they both have the same root cause. When the full extent of our spiritual salvation is realized, when we are in heaven with the Lord, the full extent of our physical healing will be realized. There will be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more tears, because the root cause of our sickness and infirmities has been dealt with. The cause of our sin is destroyed. Sin has been defeated. That is why Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel, our Savior, is called the Great Physician. He heals us from every crippling effect of sin. The healing of this crippled beggar, his physical healing, is indicative of something more permanent. The healing of our souls. And secondarily, the healing of our risen bodies in glory with Christ in His kingdom. One more aspect of this healing is worthy of our attention. 
For there are some elements of it that show how Jesus forgives our sin. The lame man was commanded to do something he was clearly unable to do. His ankles, his feet, his legs had never learned to walk. He couldn't do it. Yet Peter told him to rise up and walk. The miracles Jesus and the apostles perform put a spotlight on human physical infirmities while pointing to the effects of sin on us spiritually. We are spiritually blind and deaf. We can't walk without God reaching out to us. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. When Lazarus was raised from the dead, Jesus used that physical miracle to point out that he, Jesus, was the resurrection and the life. And those who believe in him will live and never die. Jesus used physical miracles to convey spiritual truth. In the same way, the healing of this lame man, him leaping and praising God on the temple mount, conveys more than the ability to cure physical ailments. They are signs that point to the fact that the gospel finds us as sinners in a condition that is lost. Unable to respond in my own strength to the command to repent and believe. That is exactly what Jesus clearly taught in John 6. He said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Our salvation requires a work of God. The work of the Spirit of God to convict us of our sin and move our hearts to trust in Jesus. And while this miracle in the first part of chapter 3 of Acts is placed perfectly because it leads Peter now to tell his audience, starting in verse 11, of all that it means, of the spiritual salvation that is there for them. Verse 11. While he, the lame beggar, clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico in the portico called Solomon's. The crowds are running to Peter and John. Peter, an instrument of Jesus' hand, gives all the glory to Jesus. And he launches right in to being Jesus Christ's witness once again to the Jews. Verse 12. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel... Why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at this as though by my own power or piety I have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Peter begins by linking the patriarchs of the Jews, the fathers of the people of Israel, to Jesus. This is a master stroke by Peter with his Jewish audience. Peter links Pentecost and the healing of the lame man with Christ. They are, many of them, 
keep in mind, antagonistic toward anything to do with Jesus. After all, at least some of them participated in the condemnation and the killing of Christ just a few weeks earlier. But that doesn't stop Peter. His words are designed to underline the fact that Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament and Jesus is intimately linked with Abraham. Peter is in effect telling them, for you to understand your scriptures, to understand the Old Testament, you must understand who Jesus really is and who just healed this lame beggar. Peter loads his message up with the Old Testament proclamation of Messiah as well. He calls Jesus God's servant. An obvious reference to the book of Isaiah, where in chapters 42, 49, 50, and 53, the servant songs are where the Messiah is proclaimed as a light to the nations, as one who was despised and rejected by men, as one who bore our griefs and carried our sorrows pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. All we like sheep have gone astray, and the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all on Him. And chapter 53 of Isaiah finishes with this. He poured out His soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet He bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This all came to pass in the life and death of Christ. And even now, as Peter preaches about Jesus, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for his people, making intercession for us. Jesus, in describing his purpose in coming in Mark 10, said of himself, The Son of Man came not to be, say, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' ministry was that of a servant. Philippians 2 says Jesus made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Peter uses great irony here, telling these Jews that they killed the author of life. They killed the author of life. In killing the Son of God, they murdered the very creator of the universe and the one through whom they can still have eternal life, which is the point he makes next as he returns to the lame beggar. Verse 16. And his name, Jesus' name, by faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. This one, Peter tells them, this Jesus who brought perfect health to this lame beggar can now deliver perfect salvation to you. The salvation that, as Peter explains, is the salvation that has been unfolding in the pages of the Scripture from the very beginning according to the perfect salvation plan of God. Verse 17 of Acts 3. Peter continues, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, 
that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. The core of this chapter is here in this section. Verses 19 to 21. And the point of verse 19, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, is to proclaim to these Jewish men who have been part of the most despicable crime in human history, the murder of the innocent and righteous Son of God Himself, that their sin is forgivable. He is saying, if you repent, that is, turn away from your sin and turn to God, that is, agree with God that you are sinners, that you are rebels against Him, and turn to Him and trust and belief in the forgiveness that is available in Christ, that it is possible to crucify Jesus and still be forgiven. This sin, like all other sins committed against God, can be blotted out by the cross of Christ. The cross covers our sin. It atones for our sin. That is why Peter tells them that he knows they acted in ignorance. When Peter says this, he is not minimizing the terrible sins they just committed and he just proclaimed. No, Peter is saying... Or rather, Peter is not saying, well, it's really okay. You just didn't understand. No, what he is saying refers back to Numbers 15, where the Scripture talks about sins of ignorance. Sins of ignorance, sometimes called unintentional sins, could be atoned for in the law of God. They could be covered. They could be seen as forgiven by the sacrifices of the priests in the temple. The sacrifices that were a shadow of the reality that is our forgiveness in Christ. Peter is not excusing their sin. And he wasn't saying forgiveness was unnecessary. Rather, he's telling them that forgiveness is possible in Christ, even for you. Forgiveness is possible for any sins. We commit. If these could be proclaimed as forgiven by Christ, what sin have we possibly committed that cannot be forgiven by Christ? There is none. God's grace is so great. Christ's sacrifice on the cross is so great, it can cover every and all sins. Well, three blessings are detailed by Peter for repenting before God. The first we just talked about. The second is that times of refreshing would come. We who have repented and believed in Christ, we have peace with God through Jesus. We have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And we have a taste of the ultimate rest we will have in Christ. This leads naturally to the third blessing of repentance and faith. That the Son will be sent by the Father. That Christ will return again. And at that time, He will restore all things by the establishment of His kingdom. 
and the earth will be brought to a state even more blessed and beautiful than the original Garden of Eden, where sin initially entered the world through the first Adam. Now all things will be restored in the blessings that are ours through the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Well, Peter is ready to finish his sermon with a flourish. He has already referenced Jesus as servant and noted in verse 18 that Christ would suffer, both referring his listeners back to the prophet Isaiah and the suffering servant passages highlighted by Isaiah 53 that we looked at earlier. And here in verses 22 to 26, Peter will emphasize that Jesus is the fulfillment of all Moses had to say. Moses, the author of the first five books of the Bible. Jesus is the fulfillment of all Samuel and all the prophets had to say. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Mosaic Covenant, the Davidic Covenant, the covenant with Abraham announced by God to Abraham in Genesis 12, 15, and 17, saying all the families of the earth would be blessed through him. And now, Peter says, we know who, they, who the world is blessed through. We know it is through Jesus, the descendant of Abraham. Let's follow Peter's line of thought as he takes us on a tour of the Old Testament fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Verse 22. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses said that a prophet like him was yet to come. Well, the people of Israel had waited 1,500 years for that prophet to appear. And now, in the fullness of time, he has come. Luke has already talked about this great prophet. When Jesus healed the widow's son in Luke 7, the people declared in response to this life-giving miracle by Christ, a great prophet has arisen among us. And God has visited his people. Jesus is the long-awaited great prophet Moses spoke about. There is great news in this salvation, great news of the gift that Christ has offered for his people. But have you ever considered that a gift could be dangerous? Verse 23, Peter has a warning for his listeners. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Beware, for a gift can be very dangerous. The gift of a car can be a wonderful thing, but that gift given to a drunkard is a dangerous thing. The Internet is a wonderful thing. You might call it a gift to mankind. We use it all the time. But to someone tempted by pornography, it is a dangerous and destructive thing. So the salvation that is ours in Christ is the most wonderful thing the world has ever known. And if you have been called to account for murder, but still reject the Savior who came to save His people from their sins, and is to be rejected by Him, and then to meet spiritual destruction, you are in a very, very dangerous place. You see, God fulfilled His promise to raise up this prophet. But beware, be warned, God will keep His promise 
to bring judgment upon those who reject this prophet. He came from God to us, so we must listen to him because God keeps his promises. Peter continues in verse 24. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. Now having established that Abraham spoke of Jesus and then that Moses spoke of Jesus, now Peter makes sure they understand that all the prophets of the Old Testament, essentially saying that from Genesis to Malachi, from the first book of the Scriptures to the last of the Old Testament, it is all predicting the coming of Christ. It is all pointing to Him. It is pointing to His work on the, on the cross, the establishment of the new covenant, and pouring out the Holy Spirit to empower witnesses at Pentecost. It's very much the same thing that Jesus said to his disciples after his resurrection. He said to them in Luke 24, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. What was Jesus doing between his resurrection from the dead and his ascension to heaven? He was teaching the apostles. He was studying with them the Old Testament and told them how it proclaimed him as the fulfillment of it all. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the prophets spoke about there is nothing or no one more important than him all storylines of the old testament come together come together in christ they converge in christ verse 25 of acts 3 peter finishes his sermon you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that god made with your fathers saying to abraham and in your offerings shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Peter notes the covenant promised to Abraham in Genesis 12 is applied to all the families of the earth. The Apostle Paul calls it the gospel spoken to Abraham. In Galatians 3, the servant Messiah came to Israel first, but the worldwide mission of the apostles in the church will go to the very ends of the earth. The fulfillment of all the Old Testament, from the promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses, to David, spoken through the Psalms, through Isaiah and through Joel, all find their fulfillment in Christ. This is a salvation that in the predetermined plan of God before the very foundation of the world was executed according to the perfect timing of our sovereign God. A plan that finds its climax, its fulfillment, its excellency, its supremacy in the Lord Jesus Christ and no one else. Jesus Christ, who is the living Savior seated today at the right hand of the Father, He is faithful. He keeps his promises. He can be trusted. 
He is working in this world today. He is healing the spiritually broken as we anticipate the restoration of all things when Jesus Christ comes again. Jesus delivers a perfect salvation in the perfect plan of God. The question for you is, have you done what Peter commanded the men of his day? Have you seen the ugliness of your own sin and turned to God in Christ for mercy and forgiveness? For he can forgive any and all of our sins. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful to you for these magnificent words from the Apostle Peter. I pray it will be used by your Holy Spirit in our hearts this day. May we not just be hearers of your word, but also doers of your word. May we be encouraged by the courage and boldness of Peter for the gospel of Jesus. We thank you for the fact that Jesus Christ is seated at your right hand, that he is there right now, that he is interceding for our sinful hearts even today. We thank you that Jesus is the living Savior, that he is building his church. May we be encouraged by the testimonies of those who proclaim the great salvation we have in Christ through water baptism this morning. While there is nothing magical about the waters of baptism, we thank you for the proclamation of Christ that it provides and for the encouragement it is to us to be witnesses for you. For Lord, you are still saving your people. I pray, Father, we would carry that message as your witness as we go from this place and into the world this week. We praise you that the Holy Spirit still works, still convicts of sin, still saves. May those whom he is calling respond in repentance and faith today. And may we who are your children be instruments of your Spirit's call. And may we grow in Christ-likeness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.